morning. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning and to spend time in God's Word together. There was a pastor and a taxi driver who both died and went to heaven, and the Lord Jesus was waiting for them. The Lord Jesus took the taxi driver, and he took him to a mansion, and he showed him this palace that had everything you can imagine, from an Olympic swimming pool to a bowling alley in the, in the basement. And the taxi driver said, Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much. And then the Lord Jesus took the pastor and he showed him to a little shack with a, a bunk bed in the corner and a tiny little black and white television set. And the pastor said, Lord, you, you must be mistaken. I, I, I was a pastor when I was on the earth. I, I went to church every day and I, I preached your word. And the Lord Jesus said, yes, that's true. But when you preached, the people slept. When the taxi driver drove... People prayed. <laughs> the Lord Jesus is going to reward our service. There is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will reward our service. The Bible makes very clear that every Christian is going to stand before the Lord Jesus at an event called the Judgment Seat of Christ. In fact, the next prophetic event that we are looking forward to that involves specifically the church is called the rapture. When both dead Christians and Christians who are alive at the time of the rapture, there's the resurrection, the transformation of our bodies, and then we are gathered up by the Lord Jesus. He's taking his bride home to be with him. And then the next event that we will experience as his people, as the church, will be the judgment seat of Christ. This is what we were thinking about at the men's retreat this weekend. At the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account of our lives and of our service to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus will reward those who have been faithful in serving Him, and the Lord Jesus will rebuke those who have not been faithful in serving Him. Now, there's something that we all need to understand, that the judgment seat of Christ is the judgment that we want to be at, you want to be at the judgment seat of Christ. And the reason why I say that is the scriptures reveal three judgments. In chronological order, they are the judgment seat of Christ. Then there will be the judgment called the sheep and goats judgment that will take place at the end of the tribulation. And that will determine who of the survivors of the seven-year tribulation will enter the thousand-year kingdom of Christ. And then at the end of the millennium, there will be the third judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, this is popularly misunderstood. Most people out on the street that you talk to think, oh yeah, there's Judgment Day. We call it Judgment Day. And that's where it's figured out who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not what God's Word reveals. At the Great White Throne Judgment, there's only one result. Everyone who is at the Great White Throne Judgment will be separated from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. Nobody will go to heaven who stands at the great white throne judgment. It's important that we understand that. It's important that you understand that this morning. That you want to be at the judgment seat of Christ. That is the judgment you want to be at. Here's why. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of our sins. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of our service. And so to that end, this morning, my goal in this study we're going to do this morning is to help us all be better prepared to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And so I'm going to do something that may be very unusual for you. It was unusual for my church when I taught this study last week. I'm actually going to give some of you an opportunity to respond to God this morning and receive His gift of salvation. Because you see, the first and most important step in preparing for the judgment seat of Christ is to make sure you're going to be at that judgment. And the way that you make sure that you're going to be at that judgment is not by pledging more money to CBC, although I'm sure the elders would be pleased with that. It's not by determining to be a good person of... of all those various things that come to our minds. No, the getting right with God is first understanding His gift to you and then receiving it. You see, the Bible tells us 
that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And folks, what we tend to think about when we hear that we have sinned, we tend to think, yes, I've lied, yes, I've stolen, yes, I've been jealous, greedy, perhaps I have committed sexual immorality and so on and so forth. Folks, I'm going to tell you the core sin, the core sin of which we are all guilty is that we have failed to worship our Creator and instead we have worshipped ourselves and we have worshipped what God has created. God clearly indicts us for self-worship and self-love in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The lying, the greed, the sexual immorality, that's simply the rotten fruit of that core root of self-worship and self-centeredness. The Bible tells us there is a consequence for our sin. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. When something dies, when a person dies physically, what happens is that their soul separates from their physical body. Their body goes into the ground and rots, but their soul continues on for eternity. That's physical death, that separation of soul and body. Spiritual death has taken place in that God has separated himself from us because he is holy. He is white-hot holy, and he cannot commune with anything that is unholy. And we are unholy because of our self-worship and the wicked, rotten fruit that that produces in our lives. The thing we need to take seriously is if that separation between us and God is not remedied, is not reconciled before our physical death, it will become permanent. We will go into eternity and bear the punishment for our sin for all time in the lake of fire being separated from God. That is not what God wants for you this morning. God desires to be reconciled to you and God took the initiative to make that possible. The Bible tells us and in the open service it was quoted that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Peter tells us, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God, in His great love for you, sent the Lord Jesus into the world, and when Christ was on the cross, God placed all of your sin and mine in His body. All of your sin, past, present, and future, He put into the body of the Lord Jesus, and there God poured out His righteous wrath against our sin and Jesus paid in full our sin debt to God our sin was judged at the cross and paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ Bible tells us that you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses all our trespasses By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus rose again on the third day, just as he prophesied, which proves at least two things. First of all, it proves that God accepted Jesus' blood sacrifice as payment for your sin and mine. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that Jesus has power over sin and death and He can deliver on His promise that all who believe in Him, He will resurrect to eternal life, just as He was resurrected to eternal life. The Bible tells us, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, referring to Adam, came death, by a man, referring to Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. If you want God in your life, if you want this separation between you and your Creator to be remedied, God calls you to do something this morning. God does not call you to clean up your life. God does not call you to intend to be a better person. God calls you to accept the death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf 
to accept it as the gift that it is. We do that by placing our faith, our confidence, that what God has said He has done in Jesus Christ, He has in fact accomplished, and that our sin is paid for, judged, in full, and that God will forgive us our sins and come into our lives and transform us. That's what it means for us to accept the gift that God is offering us in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to do something this morning that may be a little different. I'm going to give us an opportunity right now this morning. I don't know your relationship with God, but today may be the day where God is reaching out to you and you now understand that you need to respond to Him in faith and you need to accept the gift that He has given you in Christ Jesus and you want God in your life. And in just a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. There's nothing sacred about the prayer. There's, there's no power in the prayer But the prayer puts to words the yearning of your heart. If that's the case, I'm going to invite you to pray this with me this morning as you respond to God and His invitation to receive His gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. You can pray with your head bowed. You can pray with your eyes open. All those who have already trusted in Christ, you're praying right now, this morning, for anyone here who has not yet trusted in Christ, we are praying that they would respond this morning. You can pray this prayer. God, you are holy. I know that I have sinned against you and am separated from you. But I want to be reconciled to you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for all my sins. I believe that Jesus rose again on the third day and you accepted his payment for my sin debt. I believe you will forgive me and come into my life, not because of anything I have done, but because my faith is in Jesus and what Jesus has done for me. Thank you for coming into my life. Help me know you better. Help me love you more and more. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, as many of us in this room have, then your sin has been forgiven and God has now come to you in the person of His Holy Spirit who is now living in your life. And now you begin the great journey of walking with Christ and becoming like Christ. That's the goal of your salvation now until the Lord takes you home is to be transformed, to become more and more like the Lord Jesus. That's the first and most important step in preparing for the judgment seat of Christ. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and the fact that he paid the penalty for our sin, that's why we can say that the judgment seat of Christ is not for our sins. It is not a judgment for our sins, but it is a judgment for our service. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for our service. We unpacked that this week at the retreat. This morning, what I want to share with you all is that two things that we looked at this uh, weekend, two things that the Lord Jesus has clearly instructed us to be about that I think will be issues at the judgment seat of Christ is, number one, the Lord Jesus clearly, clearly instructed us to make disciples. Secondly, the Lord Jesus makes it very clear that every believer, every Christian has been given at least one spiritual gift by which to bless and build up His church, the body of Christ. And so at the judgment seat of Christ, He's going to ask us, did you make disciples? He's going to ask us, did you serve, did you bless my family with the spiritual gift that I gave you? But folks... He's going to ask a third question that's going to be even more important than those two. The Lord Jesus is going to ask every one of us, Did you love? Did you love? In fact, I'm going to say to you that the goal of making disciples, as we 
build into the life of a younger believer as we love them, as we serve them, as we do life together with them. It's towards the goal of helping them become more like Christ, even as we're in the process of becoming more like Christ. And what is the core characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ? Love. Love. I'm going to say to you that our spiritual gifts are simply enablements by the Holy Spirit for us to love one another and serve one another in the body of Christ. The goal of our spiritual gifts and of our service is love. To love one another and encourage each other in our walk with the Lord Jesus. I think the most important issue at the judgment seat of Christ is this issue of love. And the Lord Jesus is going to ask every one of us, did you love? He's not going to ask us, how much did you know? He's going to ask us, how much did you love? How can I say that? How can I say that love is a priority? Turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and let's think about this passage this morning as we're thinking about the priority of love at the judgment seat of Christ. Before we read and begin to work through this passage, let's look at it in its context If you just scan with me the first verse of chapter 12, we read, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, as we turn to chapter 14 and look at verse 1, we read, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is smack dab in the middle of a section in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts. The point of chapter 13 is that the spiritual gifts, whatever gifts you may have, they are to be exercised with love. That's the point of chapter 13. Chapter 13 is not an excursus on love. Chapter 13 is still about spiritual gifts and how they are to be exercised. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love... I gain nothing. What is the point of these verses? The point of these verses is simply this. Spiritual gifts minus love equals zero. Now let's process that a little bit. The Apostle Paul is saying, if the Spirit gives you the ability to speak in a language that you've not studied, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's just flat-out miraculous. But Paul says, if you stand up in the assembly and you speak in tongues, and somebody interprets, and you do it not because you love the brethren, but because you're showing off your spiritual gift, you know what you are? You're an annoying noise. You're just an annoying noise if you do it without love. If you have the gift of prophecy, the spiritual gift of prophecy is receiving direct revelation from God. Direct revelation from God. Paul goes on to say, if if he knew all mysteries, mysteries are things that are not yet revealed. If he knew all those things that are not yet revealed, he's got a direct pipeline to God. And he says, listen, if you stand up in the assembly and start telling you what God has told you, but you do it without love for the body, you're nothing. You're zero in God's eyes. Even to the point... In the last illustration he gives, even if we were to lay our lives down for other members of the church family, but we didn't love them, Paul says, I gain nothing. Well, if you're dead, you're not going to gain anything from this world. Where is it possible for you to gain something if you have already given up your life? Do you think... The Apostle Paul might be alluding to the judgment seat of Christ. That even if I go so far as to lay my life down for other members of the church family, but I don't love them, 
when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's a big fat zero. Because love is the priority. Love is what God is after. Do you remember what the purpose of the spiritual gifts are? Paul tells us in chapter 12, verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Our spiritual gifts are not for ourselves, they're for others. That's right in line with the nature of love. Agape love, the kind of love that's spoken of in this passage. But look with me at verses 4 through 7 at what can happen to the spiritual gifts if they're exercised without love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What I want you to think about is I think what Paul is saying is spiritual gifts exercised without love are actually actually detrimental to the body. Stop and think about it. How could these incredible gifts, the spiritual gift of of teaching and pastor teacher how how could the spiritual gift of miracles and healings how could the gift of service how could these gifts become something that morphs in and is distorted and becomes rude and boastful leads to arrogance resentment within the body of Christ you see that's describing spiritual gifts that are being exercised without love Let's think about that. Let's go back to the person who has the spiritual gift of tongues. They stand in the assembly. They speak in a a language that they haven't studied. Somebody else interprets and says, this brother just said these things. And everybody in the congregation goes, wow, man, that's miraculous. That's really cool. You think the person with the spiritual gift might be just a little tempted to think a little more highly of themselves than they ought. Hey, I've got this spiritual gift and you don't. This must mean that I am spiritually more mature than you are. Think that could happen? Not here, but I'm talking about in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Not purely, purely hypothetical. Think that's possible? What if you had the gift of prophecy? Direct revelation from God. Do you think it might be possible that you would get a little big-headed? Do you think maybe you'd get a little bossy? And saying, well, wait a minute, I have a direct pipeline to God. God wants us to have red pews in our sanctuary. You think that might happen? Get a little arrogant, a little boastful? What if your gift is the gift of service? And nobody in the church family notices that you're the one who stays after the service and sweeps the floor and picks up the communion cups and keeps the church looking nice. You're the one that the widows are calling in the middle of the night to come and unclog their toilets. And nobody in the church notices. And yet these people who aren't getting their hands dirty, they're standing up, speaking, prophesying, teaching. They're getting all the oohs and ahs from the church family. And you're getting nothing. Do you think you might be tempted to become a little resentful? Yes. See, that's what happens when spiritual gifts are exercised without love for God and love for for the body. And that's why the priority is love. The spiritual gifts are simply the means of our loving one another, of our loving God. In the last section of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is going to make the point, the other reason why love is the priority, love is the issue, is because love is permanent. The spiritual gifts are temporary. Notice what he says in verse 8. Love never ends. Love never ends. It is eternal. As for prophecies, they will pass away. They're temporary. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul's point is spiritual gifts are temporary. Love is permanent. And Paul keeps talking about a future day when the perfect will come and the gifts will be obsolete. What is the perfect? What is that future day? I want to suggest to you that the perfect, that future day, is the judgment seat of Christ. And here's why. The term perfect in the Greek is referring to something that comes to the fulfillment of that for which it was designed. It would be like building a house and you have a set of blueprints, but when you have final inspection signed off, that church, that, that, that house has, is, has reached perfection. It is, has, has come to be what it was designed to be. In light here, Paul is talking about the church. The spiritual gifts are given to build up the church. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, just listen, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And here's how this is defined, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our spiritual gifts, as we are given them and we exercise them in the body, is to help us become a body that becomes more and more like the Lord Jesus. Taking on His characteristics, His value system, His perspective. And when is that finally going to be realized? It's going to be realized when the church is gathered up at the rapture, brought to the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, And there at the judgment seat of Christ, as He purifies us and cleanses us, and all the dross is burned away, at the end of the judgment seat of Christ, He will have purified His church so that He can present to Himself a bride without spot or wrinkle. We will have arrived and we will finally be what Christ has created us to be. That's the perfect. And see, at that time, the spiritual gifts are obsolete. The spiritual gifts as we're exercising them now are meant to help us move more and more towards the very character of Christ Jesus here and now. But when the perfect comes, when the judgment seat of Christ has been completed, those spiritual gifts become obsolete. They're no longer necessary. Guess what else we won't be doing after the judgment seat of Christ? We won't be making disciples. That'll be done. That part of our service and work will be done because the church will be purified, the bride of Christ. We will have reached the stature of the fullness of Christ. But what will remain? What will remain? Love. God is love. Core characteristic of the Lord Jesus is what? Love. As we become more like Him, how sh- what does that look like in my life and yours? It means my capacity to love is growing and deepening. It's not a strategy that I kick into when everything else is not working right. Oh, you know, okay, I'll try an agape and maybe that will get her to straighten up and our marriage will be better. No, no, that's not what God is after. God is after changing my character, setting me free from what core problem? Self-worship. So that like Him, my focus is on others. Not as something that is outside and foreign to me, but as the Holy Spirit is doing that work of transformation, it is becoming more and more natural to love because the Holy Spirit is changing my life, is changing your life, to love like Christ loves. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that love is a character quality that can be developed? Now, I'm not setting you up with a, with a trick question. Honestly, do you believe that love is a character quality in your life that can be developed? Because this is key. If you don't believe that love can be developed, then much of what we're talking about today and much of what is in the Scriptures won't make any sense to us. 
And the reason why I say that is because in our culture, we understand love to primarily be a feeling over which we have no control, right? It's kind of like nausea. You know, it just, it just happens. And, and you don't know when it's going to hit you and when it's going to go away. And see, if you and I aren't convinced that love is not primarily a feeling, love is in the realm of our will, our mind and our will, then we won't feel like we can obey what the Scriptures teach us. You, you see, agape love, the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is describing, the kind of love that God has for us, is a love that does good to others without expectation of return. It does good to others without expectation of return. And see, now that helps us make sense out of our Lord's command to love our enemies. Because if to love my enemy means I have a feeling of warm affection towards my enemies, that's not going to happen. I can't conjure up that feeling. But if agape love is the ability to choose to do good to my enemy without expectation of return, then by the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace working in my life, I can love my enemy. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? This is critical. Love is a character quality that can be developed in all of us. That's why the Apostle Paul then concludes chapter 13 with chapter 14, verse 1. And he says what? Pursue love. That means that I can and you can grow in the character quality of love. God's kind of love. To do good to others without expectation of return. How does that happen? How... How can I grow in my capacity to love like Christ has loved me? How does that happen? Step number one is the renewing of my mind on this issue. The renewing of my mind about this issue of love and its primacy, its priority in the Christian life. Take your notes, if you would, this morning. And uh, I, I will say this, my dear wife, Kathy, I think has made, I know has made greater progress in this area of love than I have. And she has been thinking and meditating on this for a number of years, and she has developed this as part of her discipling material as she disciples ladies. And so I share it with you this morning. And as we are reading through this list of truths about agape love, think with me the healing and the encouragement and the joy and the peace we will all experience as we grow in this character quality of love. Here's what we need to keep in mind. Here's what needs to saturate our minds on this issue. First, our learning to love with agape, this is in your notes, is of supreme importance to our Heavenly Father. It is the most important command. And you understand that here at CBC, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves is the first and second great commands that the Lord Jesus affirmed. Second, here and still in number one, the most love, agape love, is the most excellent way and the greatest of all that remains. The thing we need to do above all else. And love is the identifying mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Folks, can I be real honest with you? Not that I've been dishonest for the last 45 minutes, but... You know, I'm a graduate of DTS Seminary, and I praise God for that education. But I would have to say to you that I've finally been set free. <laughs> you see, what I came away with seminary and what I, what I misunderstood was that my primary goal was to study the text and to be able to explain the text. 
And that if I had done that, then I did my job. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that that is simply the means towards the greater end of loving my congregation and helping them understand God's word so that they can be transformed to become like Christ. And to some of you, you might say, well, duh. But you know what? I think sometimes we can get it into our minds that knowing the word of God is the end. If I have knowledge, I've arrived. But folks, I'm going to say to you, it is critical that we know God's word, but that's towards the end of what? Being transformed to become like Christ, to become lovers. It's a means towards the end of growing deeper in our love for God. It's a means towards the end of our developing and broadening our ability to love one another deeply, genuinely. That's the goal of all of our study of Scripture. And it was a V8 moment when I realized, wait a minute, I've been focusing on the text as if once I've explained the text, I've reached the end. No. It is to grow in my love for God and it is to grow in my love for others and my ability to love. That's what God is after. We need to understand that and take that to heart. Number two, agape is the only kind of love that is wholly selfless, giving with no expectation of return. Folks, right there, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we know that this kind of love does not reside in us because our core problem is our self-worship and our self-love. And that's the problem. And to break free from that requires the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life. Because, folks, when it, when it all boils down to, if we are really honest and we take a look at ourselves, what we do, our attitudes, the way we relate to other people, if we're honest with ourselves, as I have seen in my life, we are, in fact, very self-centered. I am, in fact, very self-centered. Which is working against what the Spirit of God wants to do in my life. This kind of love is a supernatural love that now is possible in us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, because of the transformation that He can make in our lives. It's not natural. It's not something that just happens. It requires effort on our part to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit to allow the Scriptures to completely renew our minds and to pursue loving. Number three, God calls us to learn to love everyone with this kind of love, including our spouse, kids, church family, difficult people, and even our enemies. Folks, one of the reasons why I think we're having so little impact on our communities for Jesus Christ is because we do not love them. I shared this with my church family. I've been in the grocery store or been around town in Ramona, and I've seen my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I just kind of watch them. And they're as grumpy and as insensitive and as tuned out to the people around them as people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, you might think, well, this is kind of a dumb illustration. I don't think it's a dumb illustration. I think it right, goes right to the core of the issue. How do we relate to the checkout person? at Back here it would be Kroger's, right? Did I get that right? Okay. We don't have Kroger's in California, so... Um, anyway, that joke's not going anywhere. But... Um, <laughs> How, how, do you, how do you look at the person who's checking you out at the grocery line? Are they a person? Or are they just a thing that's getting your grocery sue and you want them to work faster because you've got things to do and places to go? And the reason why I think this is a, a, a relevant issue is that person in that moment is somebody that Christ would have you treat and would have me treat with kindness, with respect. That as they brush up against us, what they experience for just that moment is the love of Jesus Christ. 
Because we recognize that this person is created in the image of God. We recognize that this person is of infinite value to God because God gave His Son to redeem them from sin and death. We are the ones, we are the only ones in the world that have that right perspective on this person whom we may not even know. And they should be experiencing from us the love of Christ. Can you imagine, think of the Lord Jesus going through that grocery line. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus treating the clerk with grumpiness and irritability? I can't see that. Does that make sense or did I just lose you? Now, folks, the, the, the take-home is not, okay, honey, let's go to Kroger's and buy some milk so I can say something nice to the clerk, okay, and get Pastor Paul off my back. That's not it. Folks, what God is after is a complete transformation that begins with my mind being renewed and works itself out both in my emotions and in my body that now... I look at this person in a completely different way than I ever did before. And I understand that, Lord Jesus, let me show them kindness. Let me take an interest in their lives. For just this moment, I may never see them again, but Lord Jesus, you love them. I love them. I want to do them good in your name. Does that make sense? And I think as the Lord Jesus and as the Spirit is transforming us and increasing our capacity to love, that will be the way that we interact with every person we come in contact with. Because what will happen is we can't see it any other way. To treat somebody else with unkindness or irritability will not make sense to us. That will become foreign as this transformation process picks up speed and momentum in our lives. Folks, I don't know how it is here in Texas because I will say this to you. Here in Texas, you have still a far greater Christian influence in your culture than we do in Southern California. People in Southern California are jaded. You, you, we don't, you don't get a hearing with an unbeliever by saying, well, let me tell you how to... They won't put up with it. They'll blow you off. The only way that we make inroads is, first of all, to show them that we really care about them and we love them. And then, then the conversation can begin to take place. And by God's grace, we can begin to talk about spiritual things and about Christ. But again, I'm not suggesting to you that that's a strategy. We pretend like we love them. No. God wants to so change my heart that I genuinely love them, want to do them good, the ultimate good is to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Number four, agape enables us to lovingly accept our brothers and sisters without passing judgment when we disagree on disputable matters. Love will also compel us to limit our freedom when we see it causes another to stumble. In all of our churches, we've struggled with disputable issues, haven't we? People come and they have a certain agenda, or they have really, really strong convictions, and their convictions override love. And many times it's because we believe we're standing for truth. And we believe that truth trumps love. Now, I'm not going to say love trumps truth. What I am going to say is, as followers of Jesus Christ, when we hit disputable matters, truth and love need to both be in view even as we struggle to come to a wise resolution. But in Christianity, what's one of the names that our skeptics and, and uh, enemies call us? Fighting fundies. Fighting fundamentalists. I don't know about you, but I don't really feel very good about that label. It is love that helps us continue to care for, reach out, Love and serve those who are on the other side of the disputable matter. That's how Christ would have us live and function as a church family. Number five, agape enables us to overlook offenses and walk in loving forgiveness with even the most difficult of people. Six, 
Agape enables us to be patient with each other's faults and blind spots, realizing that we are at different points in the process of growing up in the Lord. You know what? It's exciting. I met some some wonderful guys at the retreat. And there's the full spectrum here in your church, from guys who are very mature in the Lord, wonderful men, all the way to some young pups, guys that are just starting out in their relationship with Christ. My concern is for those young pups here and at my home church in Ramona. Are they surrounded by love so that as they start taking their first steps of faith and obedience and and they start growing in the Lord and they make some of those mistakes and maybe you're a knucklehead or something like that, are they going to be surrounded by men who will love them and say, hey, buddy, you know what? I did that too. Let me tell you, you know, it's still walking in love with each other. Ladies, the same. Number seven, agape helps us to give people the benefit of the doubt rather than assigning negative motives to each other's words and actions. Eight, agape prompts us to protect our brothers and sisters when we hear others speaking negatively of them. Nine, agape pursues. It does not simply respond. It initiates. I don't know about you, but when I'm hurt, my fleshly inclination is to avoid and withdraw. I now recognize that as sin. That's anathema to love. This is an area in which the Lord is challenging me to love and to go after and, and to pursue those who have hurt me. And to pursue them, continue relationship with them, reconcile that relationship. That's the nature of agape love. Number 10, a person cannot agape without a vital personal relationship with God who is the supreme example and the source of such love. John 15, Lord said, He chose us to go and bear fruit. The only way we can do that is if we abide in Him and we are drawing upon His love for us in order to continue to love others. Now let me tell you something, folks. By going through this list this morning, none of us in this room have grown one lick in love. (laughs) Reading the list doesn't lead to change. See, we, we tend to deceive ourselves. And say, okay, I read the list. It's all about love. I agree with it. Cool. Good to go. No. What needs to happen, what I encourage you to do is to take this list, put it in your Bible, and read it, and reread it. Go to the scriptures that are there. Meditate on those scriptures, all in a prayerful, surrendered attitude to the Holy Spirit, crying out, Lord, Make me this kind of person. Lord, so change me that I am this person who loves. Through the renewing of our minds, through meditation, letting this saturate our hearts and minds, that's the raw material that the Holy Spirit uses to change our thinking and there change our character, change our feelings, change the way I use my body. It comes by... Long times of meditation and letting the Word of God on this issue of love saturate our thinking. Replace the old thinking that was contrary. I encourage you to do that if you want to grow to be a person who loves as Christ loves. Kathy also shares, and I think these are great, three practical tips on growing in love. Spend regular time with the Lord because it is out of the fullness of our relationship with Him that we are able to love others. Identify your areas of challenge when it comes to loving with agape. Are you easily offended? Are you impatient with those who are less mature in the Lord? Are you judgmental? Are you self-centered? Are you prone to gossip? Do you become bitter about wrongs done? As I shared with you, do you tend to withdraw when you're hurt? Whatever that is, then begin to pray that the Lord will grow you up in these areas. And number three, begin to make it your conscious prayer and desire to learn to love and forgive others the way God loves and forgives you.
Folks, as we close, I hope we are taking seriously the judgment seat of Christ. It's in our future. Every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ will stand before Him and give account of our service. He'll ask us, did you make disciples? That's what I ask you to do. He'll ask us, did you encourage my church by ministering your spiritual gifts? The most important question that the Lord Jesus is going to ask us is, did you love? Did you love? Because that's the character quality that distinguishes his disciples, is that we love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for your great love for us. Father, we thank you that you demonstrated, you proved your love for us for all time and eternity when Christ came and died on the cross and paid the penalty of our sin, rose again to give us eternal life. Father, we are grateful for your patience and your grace in our lives as we now, born again, still struggle with self-worship, still struggle with self-centeredness. But Father, we're encouraged that the Holy Spirit living within us, He will persist and continue to transform us until the day you take us home in death or until the day that you send the Lord Jesus to gather His church. Encourage us, Father, through the Scriptures that we really can grow in love. And more than that, we must, we need to grow in love. And that your Holy Spirit working through the Scriptures, your Holy Spirit working through the body of Christ as we see examples of those who love, those who forgive, those who serve without expectation of return. All of these things, Father, you use in our lives to develop quality of love in us so that we might become like the Lord Jesus. Through us then, Father, help us encourage each other deeply. And I know and I've heard and witnessed the love that is here at Community Bible Chapel. I pray that that would deepen and mature. And Father, I pray that our love then would flow out and splash on those who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would love them as you love them. That we would do good to them at every opportunity we have. And that through us, Father, you would, you would allow us the joy of helping people come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, continue this work in my own life. I desperately need for your Holy Spirit to continue this work. Thank you for this weekend and the joy of being with our brothers and sisters here at Community Bible Chapel. Father, I pray your blessing upon them and upon the elders as they shepherd the flock. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.